Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining with us for this week's teaching. As we begin, I just want to take a moment to let you know a few of the ways that you can connect with our community beyond this podcast. So first of all, I want to invite you to visit southviewchurch.com viewpoint. There you'll find a collection of different resources and upcoming events and ministries to help draw us into the life of our community, both on-site and online. Towards that end, if you are new to our digital space, we would love to connect with you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of said viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube, where we share additional fragments from our weekly teachings, art from our community, midweek prayers, community updates, that sort of thing. And I know that's a lot of different options. The bottom line is we just want to use the tools at our fingertips to create connections with one another, regardless of where or how we are gathered. And above all, may your hearts be open and expectant. Because wherever you are and however you are listening, God is here, and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying into his presence. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, Let's come seek the face of God together. And as we come to today's teaching, join me in praying these words from Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Southview. In our current teaching series, we're looking at pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, and today we're going to look at the story of Queen Esther to see how it reveals Jesus to us. Before we do that, though, let's open in a word of prayer. Make the book live to us, O Lord. Show us yourself within your word, show us ourselves, and show us our Savior, and make the book live to us. For Jesus' sake, amen. How many of you are familiar with the story, If You Give a Moose a Muffin? It's a story about a boy who offers a moose a muffin, and that one act kicks off a series of chain uh, cause and effect events that descend into mild chaos. And the story ends pretty much in the same place that it started, except there was a giant mess made along the way. And if you're like me and you've never seen a moose and thought to offer it a muffin, you might be wondering, what does that have to do with the story of Esther? Well, at first glance, Esther reads like a similar type of story, one of cause and effect that takes the reader through a series of events, each one triggered by the one that came before. Coincidence and comedic irony are met by courage, with some in the story, and foolishness by others. And it is a great story with more to it than first meets the eye. So let's go dig in. 
Esther is set in the city of Susa, which is the capital city of Persia, which was the most powerful kingdom in the region during that time. And it was written for a Jewish audience and from the perspective of Jewish people. We don't know exactly who wrote it. We just know that it was someone who was familiar with both Jewish and Persian cultures at the time that the story occurred. The first readers of Esther, they had some culturally significant events that had happened in their recent past. They had been defeated and exiled from their homeland by the Babylonians. And about 70 years later, when the Persians overthrew the Babylonians, King Cyrus allowed the Jewish exiles to return home, and he even let them rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. And so the story of Esther takes place about 30 to 50 years after that. So between 486 and 464 BC. And it's a patriotic story that's written to this small, still scattered and troubled people that tells about how serious underdogs emerge victorious over a more powerful enemy. And so you can see why it would have resonated with its original audience of people who were looking forward, holding on to hope, waiting for the promises that they had been given about this time after the exile to come to pass. And Esther is 10 chapters long, and so I'll summarize instead of reading through all of it, but I'll drop place markers along the way so that you can still follow along in your Bible. So a reminder that this is the word of God. Esther 1, it opens by introducing King Xerxes of Persia. It tells us that he reigned over 127 provinces, and what he's doing when the book opens is throwing a massive celebration for the who's who of the land, and it lasted 180 days. It's basically a lavish show and tell. There was gold and silver couches on a mosaic pavement of precious stones, and there was unlimited food and drink. Xerxes, he wanted everybody to know that he was a wealthy and powerful man. But even though he rules over 127 provinces, he has a little bit of trouble ruling within his own family. Because while he's under this influence of the unlimited drink, he gets this idea, you know what, I'm going to show off my beautiful queen so that my guests can admire me after seeing her. And she responds to his idea with a hard no. And so King Xerxes is like, you know what, it's time to get another queen. So he authorizes a kingdom-wide beauty pageant, looking to grow his harem and replace his queen. And that's how we meet Mordecai and Esther. Esther is this beautiful orphan girl who's been raised by her uncle Mordecai. And they're both Jews. They're part of a disliked and mistrusted minority group within Persia. And so as a woman as well, Esther's pretty low on the Persian pecking order. But she overcomes seemingly impossible odds to advance not only to the top place in the harem, she is crowned queen of Persia. And then Mordecai happens to be in the right place at the right time to overhear a conspiracy against the king's life. And he passes the information along and saves the king. So by the end of chapter two, things are looking really good for Mordecai and Esther until we meet Haman, the Agagite. Isn't that a great sounding name for the story's villain? We're not going to dig into what being an Agagite means right now, but it tells us that he isn't Persian and he isn't Jewish, and he has advanced to this position of second in power only to the king. 
So the expectation is that everyone except the king bows to him, and he doesn't bow to anyone but the king, except Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And Haman's like, well, I'm going to get revenge, and not just on you, but on all of the Jewish people. And so he convinces King Xerxes to sign a decree stating that all Jews will be annihilated and their goods plundered on a single day in about a year's time. The city of Susa is thrown into confusion. The Jews are plunged into mourning and Haman and King Xerxes, they celebrate over a drink. So we flip to chapter four and we see Mordecai and he is weeping in sackcloth and ashes outside of the king's gate. And he begs Esther to try and save her people. He had warned her to keep a low profile and hide the fact that she was Jewish while she was trying to win the king's favor, but times have changed. And courageously, Esther, she resolves, she will reveal her identity and use her favor with the king to fight for her people. Unfortunately, Esther's favor with the king is fading. She hasn't been summoned by him for 30 days, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And so she breaks the law, enters the king's presence uninvited, willing to die if that's what she has to do to save her people. But she doesn't die. She finds favor with the king. And so she hosts Xerxes and Haman at a private banquet. And when it ends, she invites them to come back again tomorrow and do it all over again. So Haman, he leaves full on food and full on himself, but on his way home, he encounters Mordecai, who once again refuses to bow. And this act of defiance, it almost ruins the after party that Haman hosts at his house later that evening. I mean, sure, he enjoys regaling his family and friends with the wonders of being Haman, but Mordecai's disrespect, it's stealing some of his thunder. And his wife finally says, man, snap out of it. Use your favor with the king to get Mordecai killed. And Haman's like, that's a great idea. And he doesn't get much sleep that night because he's busy building Mordecai's instrument of death. Wouldn't you know it? It just so happens that the king also has a sleepless night. Hoping to be lulled to sleep with a bedtime story, he asks a servant to read if you give a moose a muffin. I'm just kidding. There wasn't any moose in that place in the world. So he has a servant read to him from the book of memorable deeds. And instead of that lulling him to sleep, it actually jolts him further awake because he realizes he never rewarded Mordecai for saving his life. And so ironically, Haman is up planning Mordecai's death and the king is up planning Mordecai's reward. And so the next morning they get together and the king says to Haman, how can I reward a most trusted and loyal subject? And Haman thinks, well, I mean, who could that apply to more than me? So he spins this elaborate plan that involves the honored person wearing the king's crown and the king's robe, riding on the king's horse. And then it turns out that the plan he made for himself was meant for his enemy. And even worse, he's the one who has to carry it out. So what follows must have been a special moment between the two of them. And chapter six, it ends with Mordecai being lifted from wearing sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate to wearing the king's robe and the king's crown and Haman being brought low and covered in shame. But he has to recover quickly because it's time for him to go back to the palace to feast with the king and queen again. So the feast ends and the king says to Esther, Okay, 
tell me what you really want. And she says, it's simple, my life and the life of my people. And the king is outraged. How is it possible that he, the great ruler over 127 provinces, could have his queen sentenced to death without him even knowing? And Esther, she boldly confronts the enemy and she says, it's Haman. And feasting turns to fear as the king storms out of the room in a rage. And Haman, he falls on Esther, begging for his life from the very woman whose life he had just held in his hands. And just then, the king walks back into the room, sees what's going on, and he assumes that Haman is audacious enough to assault his wife in his palace. And so he immediately sentences Haman to death. And Haman is killed on the very structure that he built for Mordecai. And chapters 8, 9, and 10, they just wrap up the story. The Jews are saved by the courage of Queen Esther and by the counsel of Mordecai. And King Xerxes, he can't reverse his decree, so he issues a new one under the guidance of Mordecai and Esther that allows the Jews to fight back and to defend themselves from anyone who's trying to destroy them. And Esther 9.1 says that on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The day that would have been marked by sorrow was turned into gladness. It turned from mourning into a holiday and from fasting into a feast. And Haman the Agagite, the enemy of all Jews, had his evil plan returned on his own head. And Mordecai went from wearing sackcloth and ashes outside the king's gate to being seated next to the king's throne. Isn't that a great story of reversals? But what's the point? Why does it matter? Do you remember that story about the moose wanting a muffin and how this sparked a series of cause and effect events that descended into chaos? It's pretty pointless, kind of purposeless story that ends in the same place that it started, except there was a lot of mess made along the way. The worldview that stands behind that story is one of randomness that goes nowhere. Is that the worldview that stands behind the story of Esther? At first glance, it could seem so. It could seem that Esther and Mordecai, they navigated a series of twists and turns with wisdom and with courage, and they came out the other end as heroes merely because they played well the hand that they were dealt. I mean, God is never mentioned even one time in this entire story. Doesn't that strike you as odd? especially considering that this book is given space in the Bible, a book whose whole intention it is to tell us about God? It could seem odd. It should seem odd. And the fact that it's odd should make us ask questions. And it should make us look for clues to help us answer the questions that we have. And we find a significant clue inside a statement that Mordecai makes to Esther at the turning point in the story. So in Esther 4.14, Mordecai says to Esther, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai, he phrases it in the form of a question. Who knows? What if you were brought to this place for this time? And it might be phrased like a question asking who knows, but the story shouts the answer, God knows. 
This isn't a story of random chance. It's a story of divine providence. Because in that same verse, Mordecai, Mordecai, he declares, deliverance will come for the Jews. How can he say that? The situation is dire. It's seemingly hopeless. Mordecai says he knows because he knows that God knows. Behind the story of Esther, behind the whole story of the Bible, behind every incident of seeming cause and effect, random chance, or blind fate, there is the hand of God working and directing all events to their purposed ends. God, he is good, and he does good. He is not the cause of evil. But despite the fact that evil exists in the world, God works in all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This is the worldview put forth by the Bible, and it's the one that stands behind our faith. And Mordecai, he knew that the story of his people was the story of their God. And that's how he knew that the outcome was sure, despite evidence to the contrary. And the author of Esther has left a muffin crumb trail of clues throughout the story for us to follow. And there's quite a few of them. And as a muffin lover, I am tempted to pick up each one. But if I did, we'd be here so long that you would get hungry and distracted thinking about muffins. And so we're just going to look at one of these clues. So the story of the Jewish people, it's wrapped up with their God. The God who wasn't just their God, but the God, because he made all things. His creation was made to be his and to know him and to enjoy his presence. But God's people rebelled against him, and so they lost the blessing of his presence. Before it happened, though, God already had a plan in place to bring his people back to him. And because the serpent had enticed God's people into rebellion, God cursed the serpent and he put enmity between it and himself, between it and his people. And this is the conflict that sits behind all other conflicts in the Bible. And right from the start, God sets the terms. We read in Genesis 3.15, yeah, there is going to be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and her offspring, but... The woman's offspring is going to bruise the serpent's head, and all he's going to accomplish is to bruise that offspring's heel. So right at the beginning, we have a promise of hope. The woman's promised offspring is going to deliver to the serpent a death blow. And the Bible records the outworking of that promise. It tracks the story of the woman's offspring in anticipation of that one who's going to strike the death blow. And the story, it's tracing spiritual lines, not ethnic lines. I mean, the promised offspring is going to come from a woman, and so she's going to have to belong to a particular group of people. But that shouldn't make us think that this story is only for those people. Because if you read all of it, you're going to see a lot of examples of people from other ethnic groups coming to be part of the promised line because they want to know this God and they want to enjoy his blessings. And the Bible, it doesn't use extra words. And so when scroll space is used up in, in Esther 2, verse 5, to introduce Mordecai as the distant relative of Israel's first king by telling us that Mordecai is the son of Jer, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, instead of just saying Mordecai the Jew, which would have been a lot shorter, we know that's a clue. And then when Haman is revealed as a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, 
not just once for context, but regularly throughout the story, we know that's another clue. So where are these clues going to take us? And the first place they take us is back to Exodus chapter 17. And about verse 8, it picks up the story of this new nation of Israel who had just left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, eaten bread from heaven, drunk water from a rock, and now they face their first enemy, the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, instead of letting Israel pass through their land, attack them. And so Joshua leads God's people in battle and because of God's miraculous intervention, defeats them. And then God says to Moses, write this down. I'm making a promise that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now the conflict hasn't strayed towards ethnic lines. Deuteronomy 25:18 it clearly says that God's problem with the Amalekites wasn't ethnic. It was that they didn't fear God. They didn't acknowledge God as God, never mind respect and obey him as such. So, hundreds of years later, when Israel's first king, Saul, son of Kish, the Benjamite, is in battle with the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, we sit up and we take notice. Because these are the enemies of God's people that God has said he's going to blot out. And so then God tells Saul, he says, don't take any plunder and don't spare any Amalekite lives. But we've just heard the story of Esther. We know it happens hundreds of years later, and we've met Haman, the Amalekite. So we're like, hold on just a hot minute. What went wrong in 1 Samuel 15? Because if Saul had obeyed God, we wouldn't have met Haman. And if we were to read 1 Samuel 15, we'd see it says that King Saul took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and he also kept the best of the plunder. Saul disobeyed God, and he endangered God's people with his disobedience. And now Mordecai and Esther, they have to do battle against this ancient enemy, and the odds are stacked against them. This enemy wants to stop the offspring of the woman that would defeat him from being born. Yet Mordecai, he assures Esther, God will deliver his people. And he says it because he knows the story of his people is the story of their God, a God who works to keep his promises. And God promised his enemy would be defeated and his people would be delivered. And you might be thinking, okay, hold up just a second, because you told us at the beginning that God's people have been defeated. They have been captured, they have been exiled. And that doesn't sound like a God who's working to deliver his people. Mordecai and Esther, they could have had good reason to give up faith in a God who allowed something like that to happen. But they knew that God knew the whole story. He knew the end with the beginning. And their people had been warned about the coming exile long before it happened. And even before they were exiled, God was already promising that he would work through the awfulness of the exile for their good. About a hundred years before Esther, God spoke through his prophet Jeremiah to tell his people, don't give up living during the exile. Get married, have kids, work, seek the good of the place that you're going to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf because Jeremiah 29.10 starts to say, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. 
for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Mordecai and Esther, they weren't giving up on God because they knew God wasn't giving up on them. God's plan hadn't been ditched. His promises, they were not at an end. And so when God's people returned home 70 years after exile, and when they found that whole experience to be a little bit lackluster because their enemies still knew where to find them, and their new temple didn't even compare to the old temple. And when they couldn't see the full unfolding of these promises God had made, a story like Esther's, it encouraged them to keep the faith. God would keep his promises. Relief and deliverance would come for his people. And if the historian Josephus is right in saying that the book of Esther was the last book of the Old Testament to be written, what a story of reversal and hope for this small, scattered group of people to cling to as they waited through the 400-year-long period of silence between the testaments for that promised offspring who would fully and finally defeat the enemy. So what about us today? How does the story of Esther, a story where God isn't even mentioned, teach and encourage God's people in this place and time? Well, one thing it does is it reminds us the conflict is the same. We can get distracted fighting the wrong battles or being lulled into thinking there isn't a battle. There is a conflict. It hasn't changed, but neither has the promised outcome. Revelation 17, 14 says, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is a Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. We also wait through a time that can seem silent. We have, we have the words of Jesus in John 16, assuring us that though we'll have trouble in this world, we can take heart because he has overcome it. But the fact that we have that trouble it makes the claim that he's overcome it feel a little bit shaky. And the question that we're tempted to ask is, can we trust the promises? Can we trust the God who stands behind them? Will relief and deliverance ever fully come for the people of God? Yes. And we can know that this is true because of the gospel. The story of Esther, it reveals a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it points us to the person and the work of Christ. Relief and deliverance have come for the people of God through the promised offspring, the one who walked the path of suffering and being brought very low before he was exalted to the highest place. Relief and deliverance have come for the people of God through the one who came ready and willing to sacrifice his life to save the lives of his people. 
Relief and deliverance have come for the people of God because of the one who faced the enemy in battle. And he led them to victory through this ultimate great reversal in which the instrument that the enemy thought would seal his victory was actually what sealed his defeat. Relief and deliverance have come through the promised one who extends the favor of the king freely to anyone who comes to him. The trail of muffin crumbs through the story of Esther, it leads us to the cross and to the good news of the gospel. And guys, it doesn't even just end there. It also gives us a picture of what is yet to come for the people of God. And that helps us make sense of things in this place in time. Because when Esther, when she became queen, she had a new identity. It was done. But she still faced trouble and difficulty, and she still had reason to mourn until her enemy was fully and finally destroyed. All who have put their hope in Christ are his. They're given a new identity, and they are sealed with his spirit as a guarantee of the coming fuller inheritance. The enemy was defeated by the work of Christ on the cross, but until he's destroyed, we will still face trouble and difficulty and reason to mourn. The great reversal, it has happened, but the day is yet to come when all mourning turns to joy and all fasting to feasting and tears to laughter, but it is coming. And we know this because the Bible tells us so. And just like we declared at the beginning, this is the word of God. Yes, it's a story, but it is the most true story that has ever been told. And the end that was given to us in Genesis 3.15, it is the same end in Revelation. The serpent and his followers, they will make war on the lamb, but the lamb will conquer them. And the splendor of the Persian kingdom that's described in Esther, it can't even compare to that coming kingdom which is a garden and a city and a place of eternal day where God's people are together in God's place, living in the light of his presence. Yes, right now we wait, but we wait knowing that history is moving in a sure and a certain direction. And we don't wait in silence any more than the people of God did during that time between testaments. We wait in hope and in joyful anticipation, trusting the word of God. And we meet week after week, not to tell new stories, but to remind and encourage each other with the old story of what was and what is and what is yet to come. Who knows? God knows. The hand of God, it is working through all things and it has written all things. And so let's close today with the words from the end of Romans chapter eight as our benediction. Knowing that relief and deliverance have come for the people of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. And so what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? 
No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.